It's a pleasure to welcome Deborah Brautigam to our Governance for Development in Africa conversations. Deborah Brautigam is director of the China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University and is certainly one of the best known scholars in all the research on China-Africa relations. We're going to be talking about that, but um, I'm going to start the conversation with a set of very, very broad questions. Um, you have done some work previously on general international development policies, strategies, and particularly on governance issues. And I think you're very well placed to tell us what uh, governance means to you uh, as, a, as a concept and also empirically speaking. I think it's probably most useful to use a very simple definition of governance. And I throw back here to my time at the World Bank when we were first thinking about these issues, which was uh, 1990. And uh, there we were using a definition that basically said how governments allocate resources to meet their goals. So there's nothing normative about that. It doesn't say good governance. It doesn't say uh, anything particularly about how that's done. It's just that they do that. And so if you start with a very stripped down definition like that, then that provides you with a, a starting mm. point. But the international debates have always, at least since the mid-90s, hover around this idea of good governance, mm. uh, which has a strong normative connotation. Uh, do you think that the rise of the good governance agenda um, has improved our knowledge of how governance works in, in developing countries, and particularly in Africa? The good governance agenda really, I think, came from Europe and from the United States, and there were a lot of actors pushing for better governance after the Cold War ended that was allowed as an opportunity uh, for development uh, actors to be more involved in, in pushing for this. And I think the part of um, of that agenda is certainly about democracy. Mm -hmm. So, And then another part of it is seems to be about corruption. Yeah. And then one other part is about protecting property rights or setting up a good business environment. But I think the way that governance has been defined um, has, has not usually included very much about what the government actually does in, in terms of allocating those resources to produce development. And so the idea of a developmental state or a government that allocates resources in ways that um, foster industrialization or other aspects of that we used to think of as economic development and, and government mm. intervention for those purposes, that really isn't part of how we think about governance. And I think it's, it's kind of interesting that the, there's still a, a limited role for the government setting up, um, uh, stopping violence, so that kind of basic uh, keeping a monopoly of the of the means of violence and making sure that violence is, is constrained, mm -hmm. law and order kinds of, of responsibilities, uh, certainly um, transparency, predictability, rule of law, these kinds of aspects mm -hmm. are part of the, the broader definition of governance. But not, mm -hmm. not so much, at least not in terms of the data collection, the kinds of things that people are looking at, um, the, what governments do with allocating those resources, that mm -hmm. still isn't um, hasn't been accepted as a fundamental part mm -hmm. of the definition. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that suggests that uh, the idea of good governance um, and governance in itself um, has multiple dimensions. And I think you know, part of the problem is some uh, people in some camps focus on some of these aspects, other people focus on other aspects. Mm -hmm. One of the, the big questions really is uh, the extent to which um, good governance, as it is understood in the mainstream uh, policy agendas, um, can be considered a precondition to economic development. What would you say about that? Mm, this is a huge debate. Mm -hmm. And so good governance then, I 
I would point to two different parts of that. And one is good institutions. And so that's a, a euphemism, again, for things like protection of property rights and uh, reliability of contract enforcement, these kinds of things. Um, and then the other aspect of good governance is having an electoral system or having a democracy. So those, those two things, uh, there is a lot of debate about the relationship between those two basic parts of governance and economic development. And this is an old debate. It goes back a long time, and really you can trace it all the way back to what we call modernization theory, uh, which thought that all good things happen together, so that you had, get economic development and you get uh, political development and democracy, and, and they reinforce each other, and, and particularly that, um, well, that they do happen together. Uh, another idea is that you need um, democracy first and good governance first in order to get development, whether you're talking about economic development or, or social development. And that's very much the, uh, the thought, I think, coming out of Washington, that democracy is a prerequisite for getting other kinds of development and getting protection of property rights. But it's interesting that there have been challenges uh, empirically to this. And Hajun Chong's work, I think, is, is very well known in terms of um, his book on kicking away the ladder and just how he showed in the countries that are developed today, they didn't follow this pattern. And in fact, they started industrializing way before things like intellectual property rights or other kinds of property rights were very well protected, certainly way before uh, most of them were democracies or, or before they had universal suffrage. And many of the things, even things like central banks or independent central banks, the things that we think of as being kind of critical for developing countries to have today, we didn't have those uh, in the West and in the countries that are, are rich today. And so one can also look at East Asia, and uh, there you find powerful examples, uh, Taiwan, Korea, um, where even Singapore, Hong Kong, all of the, the, what we used to call the newly industrialized countries, the Four Tigers, none of them were democratic when they started their uh, economic development trajectories. Um, in, in the case of uh, right now, we have Taiwan and Korea are democratic, but Hong Kong and Singapore are problematic in that regard. And then there's China. And China, I think, is, is a huge example of a country that's developed economically without democracy. Um, do they have good institutions? Well, in some ways you can say because they have developed so well, the institutions must have been good. At least there must have been some kind of protection of property rights. But it certainly isn't showing up in the legal structure. So these kinds of things, they started the development first, and then the institutional changes have been coming afterwards, which is really how it happened in the rich countries. And so China's kind of following that model. So I think there's there's certainly um, still a lot of debate about this, but we have a lot of empirical evidence that suggests that, that democracy in particular may be something that comes after when countries get to a certain level of per capita income. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just empirically. Yeah. Um, normatively, do we think that democracy is only useful for producing economic development? I would mm -hmm. say no. We mm -hmm. think there are some good things that are intrinsic to democracy uh, about the kinds of freedoms that it allows people and the way that uh, people can participate in politics. Mm -hmm. Those things are good uh, in and of themselves. So mm -hmm. it may be that democracy is a good thing to promote for democracy's sake, mm -hmm. and it may be that it's not instrumental in producing economic development, and we can't actually find a basis for that, but it might be good to have. And so mm -hmm. protection of human rights, those aspects of governance may be important, and it may be that the international community is, is right to put a lot of stress on them. But I would say don't, um, don't muddy it and don't mess it up by saying that you need these things in mm -hmm. order to develop economically. Mm 
mm. because the evidence just doesn't seem to support that. Yeah. To an extent, uh, I, I guess that part of the problem is, is trying to think in terms of what is desirable and what is achievable, mm. given the economic and social and political conditions of, of different countries and different uh, uh, circumstances. Um, and part of the debate may be uh, driven by this misunderstanding of, of what can be really achieved in, um, in, in developing countries. Um, but if you think about you know, the, the actual experiences of developmental states, and as Hajun Chang uh, puts it, there are, there's a variety of them. But if you want to, to choose you know, two or three key governance capabilities that were relatively common to all these different experiences, which ones would you, would you highlight? I would say government effectiveness or state capacity. And uh, if we look at Taiwan, if we look at Japan, if we look at Korea, um, not so much Hong Kong, but certainly Singapore and China. All of them put a lot of effort into building up their, their civil service and their mm -hmm. bureaucracy, their economic bureaucracies, having uh, meritocratic recruitment systems, uh, having university-educated people in there. In Singapore, they pay their civil servants very high salaries. I think that's also the case in, in other parts of East Asia, not everywhere. Mm -hmm. But this emphasis on uh, the civil service as a vocation, something mm -hmm. that's really respected and something that... Um, uh, it's it's partly out of um, nationalist feelings that this is something that uh, people who are loyal to the country should want to serve the government and come in like that. But also they're remunerated well. Mm -hmm. So, and they they understand there there are a lot of technical experts, engineers, scientists, and agronomists, and so on working in the government. And so that, because you need that um, partnership and that counterpart capacity in the government in order to work with the private sector, in order to understand and support um, and help solve their problems. So that ability and, and connected to that is the development of instruments. Mm. So it's not just having the capacity, it's being able to use that capacity in targeted ways to support economic development. And I think this, again, is, is very much an East Asian phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We do see some examples of this in Europe. Uh, for example, Germany has very strong uh, uh, bank and industrial connections, very strong abilities to channel capital into industrialization, mm -hmm. um, and also good relations, uh, tight relations between the unions and, and yeah. the companies as well. France has also developed uh, these instruments more than a lot of other parts of Europe. Um, in the United States, there's huge controversy about this. So, of mm. course, we have an export-import bank, which is one mm. of our instruments for fostering um, business overseas for our companies. And Congress hasn't renewed the charter of the Exim Bank. So we're, there's a lot of controversy about how much the government should be involved in actually fostering business and fostering uh, economic development, if you can say that about, about our country in the United States. But certainly in East Asia, those instruments were very well developed. They're, they were uh, diffuse. They were um, in a number of different areas in which the government could uh, skillfully intervene to create uh, incentives for business, and not just to invest, but also to do the difficult things, which is to move up the value chain. Mm -hmm. These are hard yeah. things to do because it's a lot easier to stay in a comfortable niche and just produce there. But to move up the value chain, you have to take risks. So how does the government shift capital and, and mm. investment into those uh, uh, those activities that are going to be innovation-based rather than just cheap mm. labor-based? And so yeah. they've had to solve that problem in East Asia, and they've done it well. Um, Japan, Korea, Taiwan have all been doing this pretty successfully. And China's now in the process of trying to push its companies through the same difficult transition. Mm. 
And that involves uh, skill, it involves a lot of incentives, it involves understanding these different sectors, and it involves some degree of planning for the mm -hmm. future, targets, all of these mm -hmm. kinds of things. And the government has to be capable in order to do that, and it has to be credible. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if, if we move the conversation towards you know, one of the areas uh, in which you've, you've done more work, which is China and Africa relations, and China's engagement in Africa and, and its different dimensions, but, but keeping it around the, the, these questions on governance and, and different dimensions of governance, uh, a debate at the time uh, when the literature emerged on China-Africa um, was basically suggesting that there were threats uh, to improvements or to gains made in, in terms of good governance in Africa with this rising engagement of, of China, especially the Chinese government. Um, and this was usually couched in terms of China's support to so-called rock states and um, the ability of certain elites to use to leverage China's support in order to um, uh, avoid uh, good governance reforms and, and so on and so forth. Um, what do you think about these kinds of claims? I mean, this, this happened 10 years ago. When you read the press, you still see that this is mentioned, you know, human rights, democracy. Uh, good governance are under threat just because African governments are turning to China mm. for finance, for support. Um, do you think there's any element of truth behind this? I certainly think that the perception is out there and uh, the way you've outlined it in terms of providing support for rogue states is very much the perception. I think when you actually look at where the money is going, where the flows of money are going, where the investment is happening, um, where the aid is going, um, where the trade is going, these kinds of links, there's not a clear pattern, certainly. Uh, the, one, the bottom line is that the Chinese invest and trade, um, and they invest and trade everywhere in Africa. And so um, there tends to be something that we could call selection bias mm. happening where people will look at a badly governed country, um, and Sudan and Zimbabwe come to mind there as particularly badly governed with, with rapacious and, and uh, problematic leadership, violent, brutal. Um, and the Chinese are engaged in those countries. Mm. And so there's this, this idea that they're sort of specially supporting um, I think there is some evidence for that in Sudan because the relationship there was, was very close mm -hmm. and very isolated. Um, and it, it's not so much that they were propping up the Sudanese government with special finance or anything like this, but they had a very big oil investment. And so yeah. it was the revenues from those oil flows that actually propped up Khartoum mm -hmm. and enabled it to become uh, independent and to uh, survive despite sanctions from the West. And so that was a Chinese oil investment. In this way, China's not that different from other actors. Um, so we don't say, for example, that the United States is propping up the government in Angola. Mm. Nonetheless, all during the Civil War and thereafter, it's United States and other international oil companies, including Norway and other mm. very well-governed countries that are supporters of human rights. But they've all been supporting the Angolan government, which is badly governed, rapacious, and so on. Uh, because of those oil revenues. You can see the same thing in Equatorial Guinea, where the United States is a big, uh, United States companies are big investors in the oil sector, very bad government, mm. a human rights abuser, and so on. So yes, uh, Chinese investment does provide revenues. In terms of foreign aid, there's this idea that the Chinese are giving particular amounts of foreign aid. And we have a database on this, and we've looked 
at the foreign aid allocations. And there's no relationship between countries that are particularly mm. badly governed or, or, or well governed and the foreign aid because mm. most of the foreign aid um, goes, it goes for diplomatic purposes and it's pretty much spread across Africa. And then in terms of loans that aren't particularly concessional, mm. they go to places where the Chinese think they can be repaid. Mm. So Zimbabwe hasn't gotten very much there because they don't, they are not a very credit worthy country. Mm. Whereas um, many more loans have gone into a place like Ethiopia. Mm. And I'll use that as the final example. Ethiopia is not a very democratic country. There were um, problems in 2005 with the elections where the opposition uh, rioted against the results and a number of people were killed. Uh, so this is a problematic country in terms of governance. Nonetheless, it, the Chinese are very engaged in Ethiopia, but mm -hmm. so is the United States and so is the World Bank. I think Ethiopia is one of our largest aid recipients mm -hmm. in Africa, and for the World Bank is also one of the largest aid recipients. So the Chinese are also very deeply engaged in Ethiopia. So when I look at all of these, um, I think in terms of propping up governments, the Chinese are not that different from the other actors that are, are active in Africa. And we really need to look at, at China in comparative context and not, mm -hmm. uh, not look at them in isolation. Yeah. Part of the problem, uh, I suppose, is also the fact that uh, people, researchers, media, especially media, conflate you know, all sorts of different actors into this uh, notion of China. And when China comes to Africa, what, that, what does it mean? And that may raise other sort of governance problems. You have the Chinese government through its foreign aid programs and finance, Chinese banks, development banks, uh, state-owned enterprises, private enterprises, large-scale, small-scale, and small traders, and multiple actors. And I guess uh, there are issues around the governance of the relations between these different actors when they go to Africa. What can you tell us about that? It's relations between the state and uh, private enterprises, private actors, and questions of reputation, how do they deal with their own governance problem? Mm -hmm. I think this is a great question. And here I would say that the, the perception is probably borne out in the reality, which is that the perception is that Chinese companies are more corrupt mm -hmm. and more likely to bribe than companies from just about anywhere else. Mm. Uh, India may be an exception. <laughs> there is something called the International Bribe Payers Index, something that Transparency International puts together. And on this, the Chinese uh, and the Indians regularly come up at the bottom of the scale. It's not everyone that's being evaluated, but of the countries that are. Uh, so I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I know I've spent time, a lot of time in both of those countries, and uh, I've never paid a bribe <laughs> there, uh, but I know there have been certainly opportunities where, when I was asked to do so, um, particularly in India. Uh, not so much in China, but um, the, the culture of, of corruption and bribery in both of those places is very deep and strong. And we can see this right now, particularly in China, where there's a, a high-level effort and very public effort to try to crack down on some of that, maybe politically motivated, but nonetheless, it's, it's been in the news. So coming from a culture of corruption, um, going into a, a part of the world in Africa where many states are also known to be hotbeds of corruption, mm -hmm. Um, this creates these kinds of opportunities, one mm -hmm. might say. Um, the Chinese are also not constrained by um, any kind of effective legislation at home. Mm -hmm. In America, we have something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which has been in place since 1977. Mm -hmm. And this act says it's not perfect because we have a number of cases where mm -hmm. companies have violated this and they've been charged and prosecuted and fined. But nonetheless, it does act as a constraint mm -hmm. on U.S. companies about paying bribes overseas. 
The Chinese have a law, which is very new, mm. but as far as we know, there isn't any enforcement mechanism mm. set up to actually make it effective. And so, um, so again, there's nothing happening back in Beijing to, to rein these companies in. And then I'd say there are a few other things about this, and it relates to one of your earlier questions, which is about the elite relationships. In China, there's an assumption that local governments will provide help for mm. companies that come to invest. And so foreign companies realize this when they go into China, uh, particularly uh, companies from other places like Thailand, mm. other parts of Asia. They try to bring foreign elites, local governments, and uh, into their projects, giving them a share of it, um, some kind of partnership arrangement, so that they will act as a facilitator to try to smooth the path for that investment. And Chinese companies coming into Africa have that same kind of uh, assumption that if they mm. make the local government or local mm. elites some kind of partner in their venture, this will help smooth the way. And so that provides, um, it's a reinforcement of those uh, top-level um, payoffs in, in a way to top-level people. And these, are, these can be formalized or they can be informal in some kind of uh, handover or kickback system mm -hmm. in order to facilitate business. I think that in many ways um, this replicates some of the models that we saw happening in uh, this Franc-Afrique or the, the mm -hmm. French um, engagement in, in many of the countries where they were doing business in Africa at, at an earlier period. Um, we know about the uh, Angola Gate scandals mm. that happened several decades ago that involved even high levels in the French government. So some of these kinds of patterns are also being replicated by Chinese investors in Africa. And this does um, create they think it's going to smooth the way for them. But what they find happening um, in some countries is that they make partners, or they have some um, mm. broker arrangement with political mm -hmm. elites, and then there's an election mm -hmm. or there's a coup, and their partners are out. <laughs> and then they find they have to um, make uh, arrangements with the new government, and it becomes costly and ineffective. And so some mm -hmm. companies have said that they basically learned that it's, it's better just to have a more hands-off arrangement mm -hmm. because it's not so good for business in politically less stable yeah. countries to try to throw in with an existing government because they might be gone. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, there are also instances in which the Chinese, different Chinese actors have faced situations where political instability uh, increases even violent conflict, as is the case of, of South Sudan. Uh, how do you see the, the, the reactions of these actors? Do you see an evolution in how they deal with, with conflict, how they deal with uh, governments in, in such situations, and, and the, how, how do, do, do these partnerships evolve? Sudan is a really interesting case. Um, around 2006 or so, when the Darfur uh, crisis was, was particularly severe, um, the Chinese were, I think, quite rightfully blamed for not doing very much about mm -hmm. it. They had a lot of influence in Khartoum. People felt that they could put pressure on the government, that they could try to use that influence uh, for good in the Darfur crisis. They didn't do much in 2006. They didn't do that much in 2007. But, but that year, they did start to step up to the plate. And they became, and I think this is widely agreed by all of the actors that have tried to broker peace in Sudan, that the Chinese became constructive parts of the settlement rather than um, just neutral and, and or obstructionist. And so uh, Sudan, the Darfur crisis is still on. It's not as intense as it was in those years. But what they did was put pressure on Khartoum to allow in a peacekeeping force, mm -hmm. um, a joint United Nations African Union. And it, and it was... It's agreed that 
Khartoum wouldn't have done this without the Chinese. And the Chinese were very public about this. And it was extraordinary because the Chinese have a core foreign policy principle, which is non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. And to come out openly and to say in public um, to at a press conference that they had put pressure on Khartoum to accept this peacekeeping force and that it had worked is really quite extraordinary. And then we see more in the case of Sudan. So mm -hmm. um, the civil war between the south of the country and the north of the country was brokered into a political settlement. And the Chinese were part of that as well. And so they developed, um, during the Darfur period, they developed shuttle diplomacy, which was, again was the first time they had done this. They had a diplomat going back and forth, meeting with all the actors, meeting with the United States and other others trying to broker mm -hmm. the peace. And they even had uh, observers for the referendum. So they don't have this kind of uh, process in China, but they sent observers to help ensure that this referendum would be carried out peacefully. Mm -hmm. And of course, they had economic interests there because uh, the oil fields where they have invested are mainly in the south, and then uh, their refineries and so on are, are scattered, but a lot of them are in the north, and the pipeline goes up to the north. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to be sure that these, this divorce that was happened was going to happen peacefully. It hasn't worked out that way, um, and they are still involved in trying to, to calm the situation and try to, to keep um, at least a, a tenuous peace there so that um, so that the, the countries can basically get, and particularly South Sudan, can get revenues into its coffers so they can actually do something for development because they're totally based on oil revenues. Of course, getting the oil going and keeping it going is, uh, is good for China as well because they import that oil. So um, I do see this has been a, they've now also uh, provided peacekeeping troops in South mm -hmm. Sudan. And it's the first instance in which they've actually had um, peacekeeping troops that are not just engineers, but they're actually armed peacekeepers. And so that's, that's also an evolution in, in China's uh, outward engagement. So this, Sudan provides a, a really interesting case, which shows changes and evolution in Chinese foreign policy in, in really interesting ways. And I think we can expect to see more of that. Um, this idea about non-interference, we also see uh, increasing examples of this in terms of advice or suggestions mm -hmm. for what governments should do in order to uh, provide a better investment climate. Mm -hmm. We can see this in Zimbabwe. I've heard examples of this from Mozambique and, and so on and so forth. So that China sort of staying in the background is changing. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally hope we don't get to the point where the Chinese believe that it's their duty to interfere in internal affairs <laughs> for governance reasons, as we do in Washington, because I think this could be deeply problematic. Uh, I think maybe having them go about this very, very uh, tenuously and slowly is, is, a, good, is a good thing, um, and to learn in the process and to, to kind of keep in the, the backseat of these kinds of processes, because they realize they don't know that much about African mm -hmm. politics, how it works, and what an uh, intervention would actually lead to. And they don't feel confident that mm -hmm. they could intervene in any kind of really decisive way mm -hmm. in, in one of the African governance situations. Yeah. I mean, this is very interesting because it suggests that the, the whole idea of, of providing advice or, or, or suggestions in terms of policy direction um, may not be out of the table you know, in terms of the relationship between China, especially Chinese government and, and African governments. And it, this ties in with the, with the question that there are also positive perceptions, particularly among some African policymakers, that increasing engagement with China, at least countries with, like China, that have followed very different economic development trajectories compared to the mainstream consensus on the good governance agenda and so on, that there are lessons to learn. Uh, to learn. And, uh, and I would like to link this to 
what seems to be a rise of, of the industrialization agenda in some African countries and the extent to which some, especially industrial policymakers, are starting to look at China or Vietnam and other East Asian success stories as possible examples uh, from which they can learn. Some might think that this is a, a sort of form of Beijing consensus that, that, that is emerging, especially in, in the industrial policymaking and economic development policymaking. Do you think there is really such a Beijing consensus emerging? And do you think China is, has got any interest or any incentive to further that sort of consensus? No. <laughs> I don't think there is a Beijing consensus. I think I know if you go to Beijing, they, they believe there is no such thing as a Beijing consensus, mm. and certainly not in terms of, of a policy framework. Mm. I, I think the nature of what how China has developed, if you want to call it a China model, which mm. is a little different than a consensus, what has China actually done? One of the, the, the foremost things that characterizes what they've done is experimentation, mm. which just suggests that they've tried different things. Um, they also have looked outside China in order to find models about how to develop. They've looked at countries that were more successful. They've looked at countries in their neighborhood. Mm. Um, a lot of what they've done in China, although they, they may not admit this uh, formally, is, is based on what Japan did. Mm. So they really look at Japan as having gone through a lot of these processes in earlier decades and that China knew that as they um, prospered and, and grew and became an outward player, they would probably replicate a lot of what Japan had done earlier, mm. uh, moving factories offshore, building infrastructure, providing finance to, to create that infrastructure, having your companies actually build it. Japan did all of that in Southeast Asia. So I think that aspect of, of learning from others, um, learning by doing, experimentation is pretty much uh, uh, an important part of the China model. Another part that people like to point to to say, is there a Beijing consensus, is this idea of authoritarian um, government intervention. So authoritarian state that, that intervenes to manage the economy. That certainly, certainly does characterize the Chinese system. However, I don't, I don't see um, that there are a lot of examples in Africa of governments that have said, we want to model ourselves mm -hmm. like China, i.e. we want to be authoritarian <laughs> like China, and we want to develop all of these tools uh, to foster development. There's, there's one example where I would say um, Ethiopia mm -hmm. is, a, is a strong example where they respect what China's done in terms of development. And they have mm. gone um, frequently, Ethiopian leaders, high-level government officials have gone to China, looked at things like the industrial zones, uh, how China went about industrialization, and tried to, to learn from this. And they've mm. studied that experience in order to see whether they could foster this. And they very much believe in, in Ethiopia in industrial policy. Mm -hmm. So they believe that the government can set out sectors that, that can be winners, and it can try to marshal resources and and uh, foster investment by the private sector in those sectors, which is very much an East Asian model. I would say it's not just a China yeah. model. It's, it's an East Asian way of thinking, uh, and it's worked in East Asia. Not in every area, and there mm. certainly is controversy about this. Taiwan, for example, doesn't have a car industry, even mm. though they've tried to foster that. So there are certainly exceptions. Um, China hasn't been that successful in the, in the automobile industry yet either. Um, but still that idea of uh, fostering innovation, channeling resources into, into manufacturing is something that Ethiopia is, is mm. studying the Chinese experience. Other than that, I'd say there, there really aren't that many examples. China's experience with agriculture, for example, mm. I, I see very little of, in terms of, of African governments that 
that say we'd like to follow how did the Chinese manage to feed all their people. Instead, uh, you find uh, across Africa, there are very few countries that are food self-sufficient. They mm -hmm. haven't taken this as a goal, whereas mm -hmm. in China, this was very early on a very important political goal that China should be self-sufficient in food. And there was a red line about how much grain mm -hmm. or how much land should be left so that they could feed themselves. And this comes out of uh, earlier experiences with famine and also the fear of being dependent on overseas markets because these could be manipulated or, or um, embargoes could be put on them. So there's still that lack of confidence in overseas markets in China. But in, in Africa, there's uh, most African countries, and there are exceptions, of course, places like South Africa are, are not uh, dependent. They can feed themselves. Zimbabwe used to be able to feed itself and, mm. and can't today. But many, many countries are importing food. Um, mm. And just as a, a side note, we did an, al an analysis of trade relations between mm. Africa and the whole, uh, China and the whole continent of Africa. And we found that food is coming from China yeah. into Africa rather than the other way around. So, so there still isn't that consensus there. And I think that um, the idea that countries are trying to follow the China model in terms of being authoritarian mm. um, this, I haven't seen very many governments saying that. Mm. I think what they, they appreciate more is that the Chinese are interested in infrastructure mm. and that that's, that's one part of the Chinese development experience that they are, are picking up on. But they don't need China to tell them that. Infrastructure is politically very popular. Who doesn't mm. want to cut a ribbon at a big infrastructure <laughs> project and say, we brought this to you, now drive on this lovely road or you know, let, uh, light this bulb from this electric power plant and so on. Mm. So these are politically popular. The Chinese like to build them. They want to mm. finance them. Mm. African governments like to get them. So mm. that, again, is part of the Chinese model, build infrastructure. And you need mm. that in order to have the other parts of development. You mm. need electricity. You need roads. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned a number of, of, of governance capabilities which were central to some of the success stories in East Asia. Uh, to what extent do you think that these are achievable in, in, in African countries? Of course, there's going to be variety. but. What are these kinds of political conditions and political settlements that may hinder or uh, um, um, favor the achievement of some of these capabilities? I think to, to put these capabilities in place, you really do need to have a, a government consensus that really prioritizes development. Mm. And if I had the solution for how to get that government consensus, uh, it would be wonderful, especially if it was transferable. Um, <laughs> There are a lot of theories about why East Asia seems to have more developmental governments, mm. and it's it's not the case everywhere, but you could see it even from uh, Indonesia with all its corruption, mm. Malaysia, there's, there's a pattern there. Even Thailand is more problematic, but uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong as a sort of colony and uh, now as a independent, somewhat independent autonomous region, China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, there's this whole constellation of, of places there, Vietnam, mm. add to that. Why are they more developmental? Some people think it's because of the nature of threat mm. in that region, that uh, uh, countries fought wars, they developed more capacity out of this, or they face the possibility of being taken over, certainly mm. Singapore, a small island with Muslim mm. majorities around it, North, South Korea, Japan mm. facing threat in this whole environment, China mm. and Taiwan. Um, I'm not sure that explains it all. Uh, mm. Certainly there are many examples of threat in Africa. They're not quite the same. It's not really a credible external threat that you could be gobbled up. Uh, more internal threats that the state could be taken over by a, another competing power holder. Um, so, so that's, and then you do of course have the idea of 
um, a very a long time period. So there's some mm -hmm. parts of East Asia, uh, Korea, for example, China, Taiwan, where you have written government and bureaucratic development and meritocratic entry level, some of that going back thousands of years. So there's no part of Africa where those kinds of systems have been in place that you can fall back on those mm -hmm. traditions. So there, there are reasons, I think, but that's not also uh, the case in Indonesia. So they don't mm. really have those traditions that you can say it comes mm. from that. Yeah. Another thing is having Japan in the neighborhood. So mm. Japan really is a phenomenal example of a country that was non-Western and mm. accelerated itself into modernity through industrialization, building state capacity, building universities, all of this they did after the Meiji Restoration in the 19th century. So there's nothing like that really in Africa as a, as a model. South Africa is the most advanced country uh, on the continent, but they, for various reasons, um, haven't served as that kind of example or model. And that's obvious because of the apartheid era. And it's only recently that they've gotten majority rule, and now they're not serving as such a good example mm -hmm. for the continent. So many reasons why it hasn't happened, I think. Um, none of those are easy to solve. You can't suddenly get a history of, of bureaucracy. You can't suddenly put in place meritocracy. You can't manufacture a threat from outside that can accelerate your desire to build your, yourselves up to, to counter that or to have legitimacy internally. Another example would be foreign aid. I've written about this, about how foreign aid actually provided uh, so many resources from outside in so many parts of Africa. So there wasn't a need to develop their own industrial sectors, their own productive sectors, so they could be taxed so that the government could then uh, develop or, or do what it needed to do through that money. So the foreign aid resources, or mm. analogous to that, resource rents um, mm. coming from the export of natural resources that are unearned in a way. Mm. The government just takes the rents in. They don't have to do very much to, mm. to grab those. None of those do much for fostering incentives for state capacity. So I think there are, there are many areas that would have to improve or, or be different in Africa for this to happen. The final point I would say is that we can see that these, these processes in many parts of the world have taken a long time. Yeah. So institutional change, um, even in Europe, uh, these processes took centuries in many cases, getting in, in place good institutions um, and, and industrializing. All of that took a long time. And it's still not perfect in many parts of, uh, just look at Greece, for, <laughs> for example. Uh, it's, it's, um, there's a way to go in, in different parts of Europe. And um, I am hopeful that, these, that um, there is a, a change that's possible in a positive mm. direction, but I don't think we should expect that it would happen mm. quickly. And I certainly don't think we should expect that just making one quick fix, like having elections, mm. is necessarily going to get us much further down that road. Mm. I think this uh, point you've made about uh, the time horizon and the importance of pr perspective is actually crucial for any understanding of governance in Africa, and it's, I think, a good way of ending our conversation. We could go on for much longer, but um, you have to give a public lecture at SOAS at, you know, in, in less than half an hour, and you also need a break. So we are delighted to uh, have you here, and it's been a pleasure to have this conversation, and we hope to have you back. Thank you so I much. It, it was a pleasure for me. Thank you.